Sponsorship for this event provided by YES Media and KBCS Community Radio. Town Hall is also a member-supported organization, so I'd like to thank all of the members who are joining us. If you share Town Hall's vision of community strengthened by discussions about civics, science, and culture where everyone has a voice, you're supporting us by donating or becoming a member. Lastly, you'll absolutely want to dig in tonight's topic by purchasing your own copy of the author's book. Please pick up your copy through Elliott Bay Books at the Auto Bar. Sonali Kolhatkar is the host and producer of Rising Up with Sonali, a weekly television and radio program that airs on Free Speech TV and on Pacifica radio station affiliates around the United States. She's currently the racial justice editor at Yes Magazine and a writing fellow with the Independent Media Institute. Co-author of Bleeding Afghanistan, Afghanistan with Jim Ingalls, Kolhatkar is co-director of the Afghan Women's Mission. Sanavi Bridem is the editorial director at Yes Media. An award-winning journalist, she previously led newsrooms at The Advocate, Our Front Colorado, and Free Speech TV, where she first worked with Sonali. Today, she co-leads the editorial team at Yes, along with executive editor Yvette Dion. Please join me in welcoming Sonali Kolhatkar and Sanavi Bridem. We on? We are. Yes. Yeah. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Sonali, is your mic on? Is it? No. It was. Yeah. Yeah, it's on now. Now? There we go. Thank you again so much all for being here. I am so excited to be here live and in person with uh, our the one and only Sonali Kolhatkar, um, who I've had the pleasure of working with here at Yes over the past two years um, as our racial justice editor and uh, and so much more. Um, and tonight here to celebrate her, her book, uh, Rising Up, The Power of Narrative Shift to Pursue Racial Justice. Um, let's dive in. Let's. <laughs> so, Sonali, we're here to talk about narrative, which you describe as its core, at its core as story. And you open the book with a bit of your own story, some, some experiences you've had. Um, and I'm curious if you can share a bit more about how your own story has influenced your perspective on why this narrative shift work is so necessary. You know, I came to journalism in a very unlikely way. Um, I didn't go to journalism school. I didn't learn the art of t storytelling in, uh, you know, in college. Um, I was a trained scientist, and I ended up looking for a meaningful career, and journalism became it. And so I came at it from a very non-traditional way, sort of innocently, little naively, walking into KPFK community radio, so already a space kind of primed to embrace somebody like me, meaning somebody not white, not a guy, not someone with an Anglo-sounding name. Um, and, and I was sort of coddled for a few years, right? Not realizing that the actual real world of journalism was quite different. And it wasn't until I started um, spreading my wings and maybe you know interviewing for jobs outside of KPFK or encountering other uh, journalists in other spaces that I realized that I 
was of the demographic that is meant to not really be in the business of storytelling. And um, I was otherized often. My accent was remarked upon, my you know, gender, my immigrant background, my hard to pronounce names, name I had, um, you know, people calling out all sorts of interesting things about me that, oh, you know, maybe if you took your nose ring off, you could be on TV or something like that. And that informed the, the way people looked at me combined with how different my storytelling was of the things that I saw around me, of how I reported on things like police brutality or you know, capitalism or other forms of injustice and seeing that my reporting was very different from say how CNN reported. That combination really made me understand the power of storytelling, of narrative, and seeing that who tells the story shapes the narrative. And we write what we know we say the things we know, we filter the world through our experiences. And so just by virtue of being who I am, I see the world in a different way. And our, when our journalism spaces, when our newsrooms are dominated by white men as they had been up until very recently, and even now we're not, they're not diverse enough, you're gonna get a very, very one-dimensional view, particularly when it comes to covering issues of race and gender and things that are outside their wheelhouse. So my background, it turned out really informed my own storytelling and primed me to write a book like this about who gets to shape, create narratives and shape narratives and why that's so important to changing this country's culture. And you were insistent about your voice remaining centered about not adjusting your name, taking your nose ring out, right? Which, and, and you've been doing this work for, for 20 plus years. Like, that was not, that yeah. was not common. You know, I'll tell you an, a funny anecdote. I had a little, like, a moment that it didn't make it into the book. But I had this moment where I was writing in the early 2000s about what was happening in Afghanistan because I was following very closely the war there. And we had this local newspaper in LA called Change Links. And it was a little, you know, kind of a progressive free, free paper. And I wrote this article about the U.S. war in Afghanistan and about how uh, the U.S. actually no about about the oh, this was pre 9-11. I was writing about how the U.S. backed the CIA backed the Mujahideen warriors who basically were the precursor to the Taliban and at the very last minute when I sent in the story I got scared and I was like well because you know it was a foreigner. Uh, can you publish it under uh, Sally Ingalls? My husband's last name is Ingalls, and people often mistake my, my name for Sally. And, and, and I did it, and I was ashamed. And it's still out there somewhere in Changelinks' archives. There's an article by uh, Sally Ingalls, who only wrote one story. And, um, and, and, I, and I was ashamed of what I had done, and realized that it was a betrayal of myself. And so, no, I, I, you know, if the world wouldn't accept me for who I was, then I had to change the world. Right? <laughs> here, here. And of course, you know, as you have navigated the world and this country, uh, you write about the ways that you've been subjected to racial stereotypes, to, to this you know, racist narrative in a country that frankly just finds, is constantly seeking ways to otherize folks, to define you as dangerous, anyone who doesn't look like a straight cis white man, um, right? And so I, 
I wonder, you know, how how have you personally evolved and how has your work and your voice evolved as you have continued to experience those and, you know, like what, I guess, what are the ways that those experiences that you've been able to bring them forward explicitly in, in your work and including, you know, you, you not only are a, an editor and reporter, you write op-eds, you're obviously a book author. How, has, how have those experiences shaped, you know, your commitment to speaking your truth? Well, we, you know, I came of age in this country. I moved here when I was 16. Um, and, and I came all alone. And I lived in Texas, of all places, right? Like, uh, and the country was a very different country in 1991, which is when I came here, to, to what it is now. And that transformation, I've been privileged enough to witness the transformation of the United States with, with this demographic revolution that happened kind of quietly and, and even caught white America off guard. We are in California where I live, a, you know, a, a state with, with the, where whites are not the majority anymore already. And it's going to happen nationwide very quickly, faster than even the census, you know, faster than, than people thought it would be. The, the latest census pointed out that the demographic shift is coming faster. And so there is greater safety in numbers always, and now the numbers are on my side, you know? Uh, I no longer feel as afraid to speak out and to write as I used to. And also, as you get older, you get more confident in your abilities and you're able to articulate yourself better. But the fear, you know, of, of being a minority person is something that is precisely what is driving white reactionary backlash. Conservative whites fear being a minority. And I want to say, welcome to my world, right? When you walk down a street as a person of color in a white neighborhood, you're on guard. And you fear sometimes for your life, but you're on guard. You're on your best behavior. You, you worry that your actions will be interpreted a certain way, even if they may be innocent. And uh, that fear informs how you view the world. It informs how I do my journalism. So when a black person tells me that they are harassed by cops, I believe them without needing evidence because I have seen that and felt a, a fraction of what they might have felt. And as a non-black person of color, of course, I will never know what it's like to be black in America. Uh, and so uh, seeing that, experiencing that, growing up, being older, being more confident, I definitely have gotten more um, firm in my belief that we need to be transforming into a multiracial democracy. I've also gotten a little less militant, which I think is good because sometimes that youthful rage can be alienating, and I lost so many friends. I mean, how many of you, when you were younger and filled with militant rage, lost friends, right? I mean, I lost friends because you lecture your friends instead of bringing them on the journey with you. And I've definitely come to the point where I am at the place where I want to bring the people that I influence with me to a, a place where everybody can thrive, a multiracial democracy. And, um, and there's ways to do it. And storytelling and narrative work is one of the most effective and powerful ways to do that. And I've come to this place. I'm also at yes now, so I'm a lot more hopeful than I used to be. <laughs> because I no longer do the crisis journalism that the left loves and that corporate media loves as well. The sky is falling. Everything's going to hell in a handbasket. And um, 
And so I have a different outlook even on the world, just being at YES for the last two years and realizing there is so much beautiful, positive change happening and it's our job to elevate it and convince others to join us. So in all of these different ways has been an evolution. Sorry, that was a, a very multi-dimensional answer to your simple question. That's exactly what I, that's one of the things I love about you. And as you speak about the multiracial democracy that this country is becoming, I shameless plug for Sonali's piece in Yes's latest issue on growth. Um, the piece is titled Growing Pains of a Changing Nation. And it is exactly that, uh, an examination of how this country is becoming a, increasingly multiracial and the uh, white backlash to that rooted in fear, uh, but you know some, some alternatives there uh, to, to that. And I think one of the things we talk about a lot at YES is uh, what we call complicating the narrative. Um, and you in your book write about the way that racial justice narratives are rooted in the complex humanity of particularly of, of folks of color. And in traditional media and certainly in right-wing media, Right, the humanity of people of color in particular is flattened. Um, there are caricatures, there are, you know, Mike Brown is a thug, he was not a beloved son, um, right? And I'm wondering, you know, as, as we've known and, and as, as I remember actually, you know, working with you when, when you joined, yes, and kind of shifting from that crisis journalism from the traditional, if it bleeds, it leads, uh, model of journalism, which like, we don't do that at yes. And I remember editing stories being like, you, it's okay. You can take more time. You can you can take, catch a catch your breath, but it does take time. It takes more more space in a magazine. It takes more inches in a newspaper, and so I'm wondering, are there places in in mainstream media or even in independent media where you are seeing some of that shift? You're seeing media editors, individual journalists, even make space for this more complicated, nuanced narrative. I mean, there's, there's several things happening that we're seeing. First of all, newsrooms are becoming more diverse. And, you know, it's not because they're necessarily opening their doors in a, you know, in a benign and welcoming way. It's because people of color have clawed their way in and asserted themselves and pushed their way through, demanded to be seen and heard, shamed and called out uh, traditional news media. And so they've, so just by the nature of having a more racially diverse and more gender diversity in a newsroom, you're gonna get different coverage and you're seeing that evolution already. Um, you see it, you know, at the LA Times, a corporate news uh, newspaper, uh, Daniel Hernandez, a guy who used to work at KPFK, that I, I remember who's now writing for, for, for the LA Times, um, Gustavo Ariano, another, you know, the, the, another person who's a, a very, very, um, who, who had, who was able to be on independent media without any trouble, but who had to claw his way into the spaces where he could be seen and heard in a wide um, ranging audience, in front of a wide ranging audience. So that's changing already. But also people are realizing that solutions journalism, which is what YES does, really is the way forward. Because we all know the world is, you know, there are awful things in the world. During the Trump years, it was really hard to convince ourselves of that, right? We, we all know that. The other day, a friend of mine was telling me, he was telling me about climate change. We were at the beach and he was like, Oh, I was reading this new thing about how this unforeseen thing is going to happen and it's going to lead us down this and actually we're going to be warming faster than we thought and you know, oh. And I was like, you know, I don't really even like care anymore about the details of how we're, how the world is going, you know, how the apocalypse is going to play out. I want to know a why are we tolerating it? Because our media wants us to feel 
helpless and wants us to accept it as an inevitability? And two, what are people actually doing about it now that we can replicate, that we can model, that we can expand? And um, I think, I'd like to think journalists in places outside of yes are understanding and realizing that solutions journalism is the wave of the future, is the frontier, the next frontier in journalism. And that crisis journalism feeds cynicism and feeds apathy. You know, we have to convince the corporate media that it's important because the corporate media cares about profits. The corporate media isn't there to first and foremost promote journalism and be a bulwark in our democracy. They're there to make profits. So they will freak you out because they make money when they freak you out. Um, but yeah, and I, I do think it's changing. Uh, but I think independent media like Yes is always there to shame the corporate media into doing the right thing. So one of the things I write about in my book is independent media have been on the front lines of covering social justice issues, right? We knew, we understood what Black Lives Matter was before 2020. In 2013, 2014, when the three founders of that movement started speaking those words, we interviewed them. I had Patrice Cullors on my show. I used to, she was, she's local to LA. I would have her on often. Uh, when the corporate media discovered that slogan in 2020, it was jarring to them because they had not been covering the long history of injustice against black folks. And so when they heard Black Lives Matter, it sounded like black folks were asking for special treatment. So independent media have been on the right side of history over and over and over again. And we're going to keep remaining on the right side of history because right now, corporate media really doesn't like the term defund the police. Oh, they hate it. Um, but yes, media understands that defund the police means start funding the things that actually keep us safe. And so we're going to be on the right side of history where that is concerned as well. At some point, we get tired of being on the right side of history, right? Uh, another example I point out in my book is, was um, the Drop the I-Word campaign. Uh, in the 2000s and mid-2000s, right-wing media started demonizing undocumented people as quote-unquote illegals. It's a dehumanizing term. It doesn't matter if you're a, a, a boy or girl or man or a woman or trans person or queer. It doesn't matter if you're light-skinned or dark-skinned. It doesn't matter if you speak an indigenous language or Spanish. It doesn't matter what your age is or what you do for a living. You're an illegal. You're, uh, you're, you're, you're flattened, as you were saying. And, Illegal alien. Yeah, and, and alien. I mean, can you think of a more dehumanizing term than alien, right? And that's actually a government term. It's a mm -hmm. technical term that the government uses. My parents are currently resident aliens. There are resident aliens, we sometimes joke in my <laughs> family. Yeah, living in your, in <laughs> living your, in in your mother and uh, <laughs> and And Color Lines Magazine, another independent media outlet, started this campaign. They're a journalism outlet, but they started a campaign, and it was a narrative campaign, Drop the I-Word. And they got, very quickly, they got Associated Press to jump on board and stop using that word illegal to describe human beings, right? Undocumented persons, undocumented people without papers are still people, first and foremost. So that's where independent media always pushes ahead and is on the front lines. And yet, in your book, you, you don't let mainstream, independent, even left-leaning media off the hook, right? Because even as, as I, I agree that independent media is, is better at this, right, is tends to write with a more people-first framework. That said, you know, the, the Trump years really brought forth uh, particularly mainstream media's refusal to call a racist a racist, yeah. right? Because, and, and I, 
I, you know, in my journalism education, right, we were taught so much about objectivity, journalistic uh, impartiality. Of course, in my world as, as a queer person, right, that meant I had to explain why I should be allowed to cover the movement for LGBTQ rights, despite the fact that we have been letting straight white men report on the president for the entire history of this country, when the vast majority of the presidents have been straight white men. That's not a conflict of interest. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> but I'm, I'm wondering how, how your views on impartiality have, have shifted and, and informed your work and how you feel about any shift that you were starting to see, right? We saw a lot of yeah. newspapers saying, oh, we, we believe Black Lives Matter. Well, sure, after millions of people took to the streets proclaiming this basic statement. Yeah, you know, uh, the corporate media have, uh, I have a chapter in my book on uh, Fox News, faux news versus Fox News. <laughs> um, so the right-wing media, is, you know, that's the, it's an easy starting point, I admit. Uh, but then corporate media, all the news that's fit to print, right, is what we what the New, New York Times has decided um, is, is has been their slogan for, for so many years. The corporate media's job should be, you would think, the so-called liberal media should be to actually uphold the values of a liberal democracy, which means, you know, whatever, equal rights, everybody's a human, and if you're a human, you have all these rights under, constitution, under the Constitution, whites are equal to blacks are equal to, et cetera, et cetera. And the corporate media, over and over and over again, is so afraid of being called out as liberal that it appeases the right-wing media and either doesn't call them out by which, uh, which ends up allowing uh, the right-wing to define the status quo. And the Trump years were a classic example. When Trump came out in 2015 to announce his candidacy to the world and said that Mexicans were rapists, it didn't take any stretch of the imagination to say, wow, that's a really racist statement. We have a racist candidate running on a white supremacist platform. But what did the corporate media do? They did a fact check, you know? Oh, look, we did all this analysis, wrote the Washington Post, and it turns out that most Mexicans aren't rapists, <laughs> right? Um, and okay, I'm, I'm all for fact checking, that's fine. Let's, you know, it's, if you wanna do fact checking, I, I'm, I, I never say no to a good fact check. But then follow that up with, this is a racist statement, this is a racist candidate, and they didn't. And they didn't in 2016, they didn't in 2017, and they didn't until 2018 when Trump basically tweeted to the young congresswomen of color AOC, Ilhan Omar, et cetera, that they should basically go back to where they came from and solve the crises in their countries or their places of origin. It wasn't until that moment that the corporate media, that the Washington Post and that NPR even decided Trump was a racist and they patted themselves on the back for having meetings about it. In fact, they talked about having internal meetings where they decided it was okay to call him a racist and they talked about what a painstaking decision that was, and we were supposed to be grateful that they arrived at this conclusion two years into the tenure of the most racist, what most white supremacist president in recent memory, right? We were supposed to feel grateful that they arrived at this in a very professional manner. And that idea of professionalism obscuring the Pres preservation of a white supremacist status quo needs to be called out again and again and again. And the corporate media enabled Trump 
either by their silence or by actively, you know, egging him on, as CBS's then CEO Les Moonves said, uh, that this is a lot of fun. Trump is making us lots of money. Uh, and it's true, Trump was a bonanza for the corporate media, the so-called liberal corporate media. And, and it's shameful what they did and continue to do. And, and you know, they published mea culpas, they published apologies, they interrogated their past coverage and found it to be racist, they promised to do better. And have they? I don't know. <laughs> it remains to be seen. Right, and, and we're still having this conversation where objectivity and this this idealized version of, of impartiality, whatever that means, and let's be frank, what it means is from a white supremacist perspective, because that's what this country is founded on, right? That's what is objective. Um, we are still privileging that over the humanity of people of color. And that, that is, I think, the central, the central issue. Dis and, and for even mainstream media that loves to fact check, loves to rely on, you know, on, on facts, on verifiable information, right? There's an adage that says like, well, the truth has a liberal bias, right? And, and still, right, we, we, we you know, struggle to call climate change you know, human driven, despite the fact that all of the data, all the facts suggested that indeed we're, we're still having this conversation. And so you, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, faux news, Fox News, um, that you, you're right, you know, that, that chapter certainly illuminates uh, the, the ways, uh, what, what I like to call the Fox to fascism pipeline, um, goes from, you know, Bob Gates to Rush Limbaugh to Fox News that, that radicalizes folks. That said, Fox News and the right wing are really good at narrative work. They are, they not only march in lockstep, which comes with fascism, uh, but they truly, they, right, their, their narrative work is very strong. They've weaponized it uh, in, you know, in oppressive, you know, restrictive ways. But I'm wondering if you feel like there are lessons that we can learn and leverage from the right wing media in service of racial justice. Uh, yes, and you know, the right is extremely good at storytelling, and this is this is their story. They don't come out necessarily and say this explicitly, but if you study the policies, if you study the themes and the tropes that they put out, the story of the right goes something like this: that intrepid white settlers discovered America, made a country out of nothing, built it from the ground up poured in hard work and, and made it the most important, powerful, wealthy nation in the world, you know, mo the, the, the wealthiest of the most militaristic, just the, the, the most alpha male of the nations. Uh, and here we are now, the black people want special treatment, undocumented immigrants are coming across the border, cutting in line and taking what's ours and we're not going to let them. And this is the story of the right, and it's a fear-driven story. It's very seductive, because it makes you feel like you're under siege, at least makes white conservatives feel like they're under siege, and that they have to fight for something. And every policy of the right can be seen, you know, almost every policy through that lens, right? I can't have my taxes paying for your health care. Never mind that it'll pay for mine too, but it can't pay for yours. Um, and never mind that white Americans have been the largest recipients of welfare benefits, but we can't have collectivism because if my 
Anything that I earn helps you, you who are trying to take it from me, we can't have that. That is a story of the right. And their policies are shaped by this unsaid story, the story that doesn't always get articulated in its entirety, but it's very effective. Because sometimes, you know, those of us on the left wonder, how are people buying this? How does this, any of this make sense? Why are they cutting off their noses to spite their faces? It makes sense if you look at the world through that lens. And, and Fox News pummels that story every day, and then the Republican Party pummels it. They, they're a, an echo chamber, right? Someone on Fox News will say, look at those uh, liberal cities calling themselves sanctuary cities. They think it's easy to just welcome immigrants. Maybe a Republican governor should send a busload of migrants from the border to, their, to these sanctuary cities, and then we'll see what they do. And then a Republican governor watching Fox News says, well, that's a good idea. Let's do it. Let's send some migrants to Martha's Vineyard. Let's send them to Los Angeles, New York, and, and LA, uh, and, and DC. And they've been doing it, right? And then Fox News can have another headline. Oh, sanctuary city overwhelmed by migrants. See, we told you so. And they become this echo chamber. And they reinforce one another. And their story is very articulate, and it's consistent, and it's powerful, and it's based on fear. What is our story, right? And, and no, not enough media outlets on the left or progressive outlets or those based in liberal, liberalism ask ourselves, what is our story? What is the beautiful, not fear-driven, but the beautiful, joyful, promised land that we are all fighting for? What does it look like? What does a multiracial democracy look like? One where we've solved the climate crisis and our children have a future. One where everybody has government-funded health care and money is going towards funding that instead of wars. One where our libraries and schools are fully funded and jobs are plentiful and well-paid and we don't need policing. That beautiful, joyful future, if we're not writing about it and articulating it and winning people over and seducing them with the beauty and the joy and, and the promise of it, then we're not going to achieve that future we want. And that's why yes is, of course, so important. And narrative work is so important. So what is our story? And we have to be asking ourselves that all the time. Why is this issue important? How does it fit into our story of what we want for our future? Right? Our story is one about the possibilities of the future. Their story is about the loss of the past and the present. And certainly the, right, you, you speak quite a bit about how, how fear is such a motivating factor. And, and yet, you know, we, data shows that readers are burnt out on, on, you know, disaster news. They are, the advertising revenue model of traditional journalism is also crumbling. And what we're finding is that readers are more engaged with solutions journalism, right? I think of solutions journalism as the missing link to journalism, right? Not just this is how many people died today, or this is the devastation that was wrought in this community. To me, it always felt like there was a missing question there of then what, right? Then what? And what you know, what you you do particularly so well at, at yes, and what we we all strive to do is that we try and go into those communities, right, and actually hear from the people on the ground. And I think that's also a, an important piece here around what traditional journalism prioritizes and who they consider an expert, right? And I think you know, you spoke a bit about how your experience, you know, you you don't need to fact check that a black person was harassed by a police officer, 
because you believe them because you've seen it you have and you just believe them because all, like why why would why would anyone make that up particularly given you know the, the racial dynamics in this country so I, I guess my, my question is kind of how do we I guess how do we overcome the fear yeah. right because because hope is powerful but it can feel amorphous it can feel far away it can feel abstract and and in a, a big tent you know left progressive movement right we have all of this infighting yeah. uh, that you know that the right seems to like be able to shut down probably because the narrative is so powerful and so so limited right there is no there's no room for deviation and part of what what progressives aspire to do I think is is create space for many different versions and many different experiences. But I'm wondering, you know, what do you find is, is, more, is more effective than fear? You know, the, the fear just drives cynicism. And, and when you're cynical, then you stay put and you think nothing's gonna change, so why bother participating? And, and, but articulating hope, as you were saying, can feel really amorphous and it can feel insurmountable. And what Yes does so effectively, and I, you know, I, I've learned from my colleagues at Yes, I had to train myself over these last two years in, 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 in understanding how to do solutions journalism. What, my, what, what Yes and my fellow editors and writers do well at Yes is seeing those things that are happening on local levels, because often at the hyper-local level, a lot of grassroots changes are happening, but not seeing that in isolation, not seeing that as that's one really nice little thing happening over here. Rather, we're saying, here's this amazing nice thing, here's a similar thing happening over there, here's a thing happening over here. Some of, the, some of these things have all of this stuff in common, but they're unique to their surroundings, or this one has figured it out, but that one has yet to figure out the challenges, um, et cetera, et cetera. We, we analyze the hyper-local grassroots change makers and how they're making change, and we apply them to big spaces and apply them to, to bigger models, and, and just by virtue of articulately and analytically you know, showcasing that, is, is a better way to, to encourage people to do better and to do more and to learn more about it and figuring out how they might be able to apply it in their own communities. You know, and, and the beautiful thing about it is that we no longer even need to rely on journalists like us to tell the stories, which I think is a really good thing. We have peer-to-peer -peer communications, right? Whether it's on the social media platform of the month or on the one of next month. Uh, but we do have the ability to communicate peer-to-peer -peer now. And, and organizations that are making change, they're, you know, they're, they're putting together their own podcasts. They're writing about it, they're tweeting about it, they're posting about it, they're, they're taking photographs and making short documentaries and films and sharing them. And they're showcasing how they're fighting back and what they're building to replace the things that don't work. And I love that because it means that Yes's job isn't so hard, and, you know, or, or may not be as hard as we think it's going to be. Um, and so I think that, that there's a lot of hope, a lot of potential. The technology has made it a lot more accessible. People can be citizen journalists today like they never could before. Um, and and I, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful even about the state of the mess 
and that we see today. Um, you know, and I think that that our challenge is going to be how we convince our fellow journalists that this is the way forward. Because I bring in, a, I, have a, I have a big Rolodex from 20 years of journalism and I've tried to bring in writers to Yes that I've worked with before. And it's hard to get them to drop the, the, the you know, I'm gonna spend four-fifths of my article articulating why there, this problem exists. And then at the very end, I'm gonna mention that someone's doing something about it. And, and I have to help, you know, help them Let's turn that over. Let's start with, uh, with what someone's doing to fix it. You may want to mention why it's a problem or like link to the 500 other articles that already write about why it's a problem and then focus on what is being done to solve it. Because, you know, people are asking, what, what happened to Black Lives Matter? It's 2023. They were so active in 2020. I'm like, well, if you'd been reading, yes, you would know what happened to Black Lives Matter. You would know that in Los Angeles, they're electing members of the local city council, engaging in pilot programs to have police be replaced by unarmed officers doing traffic stops. They are engaged in the movement to uh, realize reparations in California. They are engaged in shutting down jails in Detroit and stopping Cop City in Atlanta. That's what Black Lives Matter is doing. And if you read the corporate media, you wouldn't know it because they don't want to cover it. But we're covering it. And, and I know you've encountered this as well. Sometimes when we are telling those, those nuanced stories, we're telling those solutions-oriented stories, pushback from other journalists uh, or, or you know, from, from corporate media, from the the critical ether uh, that seems to hover over all of us, right? We get accused of that being fluff, of that being like, oh, just feel good news. And, and you talk about this a bit in your book as well, about the potential for narrative shift to be co-opted as PR or by PR. So how do, we, how do we avoid that? What have you found works? Narrative change by itself is just PR, right? If, if a corporation says, oh, we are moved into, moved by the protests that we're seeing and we're now embracing a Black Lives Matter framework and we're gonna bring in a DEI officer and all of that, unless they're actually going to make changes where they matter, say by making sure there's salary equity, uh, you know, or any number of things to actually change concretely the conditions within their corporate structures, then it's just PR. It's just a way for them to say, aren't we good corporate citizens? So narrative power without policy shifting is meaningless. However, policy shifting without narrative doesn't stick, and it can be very fleeting and not as powerful. I'll give you an example. Um, the, the, the right to an abortion was legalized you know, many years ago with the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision at a time when culturally we hadn't openly embraced the right to an abortion. Of course, it's always been popular. I mean, you poll people, it's always popular. But the culture wasn't open about it. There was still the stigma. And we never changed that. And Hollywood, liberal Hollywood, over and over and over stigmatized and still does abortion, right? Juno, remember that movie? Mm -hmm. A young girl gets pregnant, she agonizes about her decision, she might go to a Planned Parenthood clinic and then she walks away but she ends up having the baby or et cetera. So, so all our storylines kind of fed the so-called pro-life movement, the anti-abortion movement, and here we are today where we've lost that right. That was an example of policy shifting without narrative work, right? Without the narrative work that goes along with it to make it stick. We need mass cultural buy-in 
for the policies that are going to lead us into a multiracial democracy. And that's where narrative shifting combined with policy shifting is so critical. It needs to happen in tandem. You know, as a journalist, I only write about the narrative stuff, but the, the policy shifting needs to, it, 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 my work wouldn't matter as much if there weren't people on the ground, activists, actively mobilizing and organizing to make change happen. So I think that that's an important thing to think about. I mean, you know, another example is like uh, land acknowledgements. Land acknowledgements are a form of narrative power, right? But they're meaningless unless they go hand in hand with the land back movement. But a land acknowledgement opens the door of your mind to admitting and accepting that we are on stolen lands. And if you mentally embrace that idea, you're going to be more open to the idea of social movements that are demanding their land back, and indigenous-led social movements demanding land back. So there you have a great example of how narrative shifting, along with policy work and activism and grassroots mobilizing, um, they can and do work in tandem, and they have to you know, go one along with the other. But if you just do land acknowledgments, and, and, and there's no follow through and there's nothing else happening, or then you oppose land back movements, then you're part of the problem. You're accepting the status quo. Then it's just meaningless. You're just adopting a slogan to make yourself feel good. And we can't have that. And certainly that adoption of a slogan uh, is, is something that happens in Hollywood, uh, right? You, you live just outside Los Angeles. Uh, you've you know, brought you know, brought reporting uh, from, from the front lines of, of the, the writer's strike and whatnot to yes. And Hollywood prides itself on being this liberal bastion, right? And the right-wing media loves to call Hollywood, you know, this liberal cesspool, whatever whatever words they want. But you and I were speaking backstage, and you were pointing out that you feel like the narrative that Hollywood advances actually often enables yeah. the right-wing agenda. Can you expand on that a little bit? You know, I, I went to watch this, I went that new Indiana Jones film. I don't know how many of you have seen that uh, in the theaters when it came out, because I have two boys, and so they were like, ah, let's go watch this film. And so uh, I, so the, the my family and I, we all went. And within the first five minutes of that movie, right, like the protagonist is on a train, and it's moving, and his, you know, friend is with him and they've just had this chase scene and then the villain shows up on top of the moving train and miraculously none of them are falling off this train and then the good guy the good guy pulls out a gun and on this moving train with very old Nazi era technology I might add manages to accurately aim a gun at the head of whatever of the villain shoots him the guy falls off and classic Stopping a bad guy with a good guy trope. Uh, stopping a bad guy with a good guy stopping a bad guy with a gun trope. Spelled out in this Indiana Jones film. And we see this theme over and over and over again in Hollywood, right? Hollywood is the biggest cheerleader for the gun rights movement. The biggest Second Amendment narrative industry rivaling, you know, the, the, the NRA. Because they've built this idea into our popular culture that guns solve problems, you know, and we don't challenge them. In the same movie, they'll turn around and have, you know, some racial justice nod, some gender equity, but then the gun will solve the problem. So that's one example. Uh, but my favorite example that I write about in the book, I have a whole chapter on which I 
was, it's one of my favorite, it's, the, it's my favorite chapter in my book, it's called Copaganda. I didn't invent the term, of course it's a term that uh, critics of police brutality have seen, uh, have used, and, and it's pro-police propaganda. And, it's, and Hollywood is rife with copaganda. And, you know, I grew up watching 21 Jump Street. It was like my favorite show, because I used to think Johnny Depp was cute. But it's a show that normalizes adults pretending to be teenagers as cops infiltrating a high school. It, it's a copaganda show. And I, my, I didn't, I'd never been to the US, but I watched 21 Jump Street, like millions of kids like me around the world, and we normalized and internalized this copaganda. And it happens over and over again. Uh, so I, I profile in my book, Watchmen, the new show by David Lindelof, new-ish show. Oh, it was so promising because it centers the Tulsa race massacre, which is so rare in Hollywood for them to bring that out. But what Damon Lindelof, the showrunner, does is he casts police and black folks as the victims of white supremacist vigilante, um, you know, people who are white supremacist vigilantes and the purveyors of violence. And the most, you know, the, the, the most um, tantalizing kind of, uh, of trope that Hollywood loves is to cast cops with black actors. They love doing this. It's something that I didn't see much uh, commentary about when I did the research of this book, but for this book, but every time I would view movies through my lens of narrative, I would notice, oh, here, there, there's another black cop. There's another, so many black cops in Hollywood, more than in real life. Uh, Color of Change, uh, the wonderful organization whose uh, who's reports I used in the book, points out how there's this unwritten rule in Hollywood. You can't make the victim of police brutality a person of color. They have to be white. Victims of police brutality have to be white. And Damon Lindelof did this in Watchmen. He cast Regina King as a black woman, as a cop, who goes on to brutalize a KKK guy, a white supremacist guy, you know, she's off screen, you hear her brutalizing and beating him to a pulp, and we're cheering her on because she's a black woman, she's a cop, she's beating up a white supremacist, and we're cheering on police violence and police criminality and police brutality and vigilanteism. And this was so slyly done, and if you, unless you were paying attention to the narratives in this show, you wouldn't have noticed them. Damon Lindelof, Admitted in interviews, he grew up watching Miami Vice. Don Johnson was his like hero. He used to do ride-alongs with the SFPD. And he thinks he's really liberal because he has black folks in his film and he centers the Tulsa race massacre. But he's a propagandist, and many of them are. And I don't think Hollywood realizes the power of its pen. When I was on the writer's strike um, picket interviewing writers, I was asking them, so now that you know what it feels like to be on the receiving end of capitalist greed, how are you gonna fit this into your storylines? And over and over again, I got this sort of head scratching, well, you know, I mean, I would like to think most people already know what it's like. No, you are in the narrative setting industry. You shape our culture through mass media. There is no more influential mass media you know, uh, narrative industry than Hollywood, not just in the US, but the world over. And, uh, and he didn't even think that he needed to do this. And then, you know, when I, one of the writers, when I asked him, he was like, well, you know, I don't know, you have to make it entertaining, you know, you have to, and I was like, you know what, Boots Riley knows how to do it. 
right? Have you seen his film, Sorry to Bother You? And he has a new uh, show on Amazon Prime called um, I'm a Virgo. It's like Boots Riley knows how to make entertaining anti-capitalist fare. And Boots Riley is someone who's basically an outsider to Hollywood, and he's a black person from Oakland, California, and he brings his experiences, his lived experiences to Hollywood, and he knows how to write the stories that shape our culture. And a lot of white writers in Hollywood still don't even see themselves as part of the problem and don't know how to change it. And you know, I, I hope they, I hope they read my book. <laughs> so I've been handing it out. I have friends in the industry, you know. I'm like, please read this. Well, and as, as you're speaking about right, the, what stories get told and who decides what stories get greenlit, right, I always think about who, not only who's in the writer's room, right, and, and obviously you speak about tokenism, right, having one black person or one person of color in the room does not mean, like, any show is anti-racist, right? Uh, inclusion is not equity. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, most of these studios, right, particularly the ones that are digging their heels in on the writer's strike, are owned yeah. by a very small handful of white men, uh, right, where we're looking at these monopolies and we're seeing a similar thing in on Twitter, X, whatever, it, it's always gonna be Twitter, um, right, and so I'm wondering, and we, we write about this in, in Yes and the, you know, the, the, the peril of, of billionaires and relying on billionaires uh, to save us, quote unquote. So I'm wondering, you know, and you speak about, particularly in the book, about black Twitter, you call it a remarkable narrative setting institution. Uh, right, and, and particularly, I think Twitter is is an, is an incredible example, right, the way it, it facilitated um, organizing in the Arab Spring, right, around the world, right, real-time connection between people who were on the ground, folks who were not able to be on the ground but could relay messages, and obviously now Twitter is experiencing this slow, agonizing death uh, by by way of Elon Musk, and so I wonder what what that, and, and even what the the corporate overlords of Hollywood, uh, right, who, who will tell us that you can't have a victim of police brutality be black uh, because that's not sympathetic. But if you make a cop black, then it is sympathetic, right? So like black people are or are not sympathetic. But what, do, what does that teach us about relying on media vehicles owned by billionaires? Yeah, I mean, uh, when I was writing the book, it was before, it was pre-Elon Musk and, uh, you know, I point out how so much of the narrative work around police brutality was done on Twitter and, and they were ahead of the curve, right? New York Times uh, and, and all of the major media were not able to wait for the police report when George Floyd was murdered and, uh, you know, ask to, to see the pro-police view and report on that. And then, you know, maybe down the line, they might have seen if there were witnesses. They were right away forced to cover it as an act of racist police brutality because Darnella Frazier, the young black woman who filmed the whole encounter, uh, posted it to Twitter. And she didn't just post it to Twitter, she framed it. She framed it with a narrative. She called it police brutality. She said they showed him no, no type of sympathy and uh, she called it out for being, she, she called it out as an act of racism. And, and then it got shared and it took a life of its own. And the corporate media had to scramble and they had to report it as an act of racist police brutality, violent, fat fatal racist police brutality. And that was just one example of the power of black Twitter. And black Twitter has been studi studied by sociologists, by, you know, there's been whole papers and studies. I had like a, a wealth of information to, to call from for the book. Um, because it's been so well studied and along came Elon Musk and basically blew it all up. 
And the lesson from that is, of course, that yes, as you were pointing out, we cannot rely on platforms owned by billionaires who on a whim will decide how we should communicate with each other. And what we need to do, first of all, is figure out how to pivot. We, as in the rest of us, figure out how to pivot to other types of social media platforms, knowing that our networks are transitory, knowing that they may exist in the moment and they may not exist in the future, not becoming too reliant and too uh, addicted to the followers and that and that thrill of being on Twitter, and then figuring out how to build our own alternatives because we need we need a digital commons. We need a space. The, the technology exists because taxpayers paid for it, and the technology needs to be used by us in ways that are freed from the algorithms, freed from the profit motives, and allows direct peer-to-peer -peer communications. And that is a challenge before us. I don't have an answer to how we achieve that, but that's what needs to be done. And we talk about it in our editorial meetings all the time, which is like, who can, who's writing about how do we talk about who's for, who's Who's creating those alternatives? And you know, may, you know, can we nationalize Facebook or, or whatever the, the flavor of the month is? Can 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 those be brought within the public sphere in some way? And that is a really important question that you know outlets like yes dare to ask that question because we don't care if we're called socialists, right? <laughs> I have one more question for you, and then we'll move into the Q&A. Um, I do see one question here reminding folks. You can scan the QR code, submit your questions here. So we're talking about social media, right? And, and you write in your book about the limits of social media and say that it is not really designed for constructive discourse. And that, that kind of constructive discourse occurs much more effectively on the individual level. You write quite a bit about deep canvassing and some incredible studies about you know, the ways that a 10-minute conversation can shift someone's perspective uh, for, for months, and, right, and, and that that tactic utilizes some of the same approaches as narrative shift, R you know, rooted in, in the humanity of the folks you're talking about, building common ground around, around that central humanity, right? The things we all wish for, we all want our children to be safe, we wanna have food on the table, we want to, right, be able to, to live and breathe and exist in ways that bring us joy. And so I'm, I'm wondering kind of like what are, again, like what are the lessons there, right? Particularly when we're thinking about m more broad media that can't necessarily engage on that individual discourse. Like what are the kinds of lessons we as journalists and, and folks here as media consumers can take from, from what we're learning about the ways these individual stories, these individual connections actually do fuel social change in support of racial justice and collective liberation? Uh, well, we need a lot more of yes media, first of all, uh, to change our culture. I, I mean, look, when, when, when we just consume the kind of media that is the crisis journalism, that, that is the, the, you know, we're on the winning team and, and, and that other group over there is the, the losing team and, and uh, I'm pro-Biden or an, I'm anti-Biden, then what we do is we approach our own neighbors and friends with that same lens and we alienate one another and I've done it, you know, I can't help it. It's so, so, it's so tempting to, to, to point out how idiotic certain policies are or how infuriating and short-sighted it is to, to adopt certain attitudes and we want to call it out. And we have to ask ourselves, but to what end? Like, what's our goal? 
You know, if we go in to debate somebody, what's, your, what's our goal? What is my goal in talking to a person from quote unquote the other team? Is my goal to make him feel like he's inferior so I can walk away feeling good about myself and pat myself on the back and both of us have dug, dug our heels in some more? Or is my goal to convince him to join me on this side? And if that's my goal, how can I talk to him? And frankly, I have a hard time putting into practice my own recommendations because it's hard for us all you know, to, to, to rise above the anger because many of us feel anger, especially those of us have, whose very existence has been up for debate. You know, During the Trump years, I had a relative who, who was very Trumpy. The rest of the family didn't know about it because him and I were the only ones on Facebook. So I would see everything. And, uh, and I just got angrier and angrier. And I alienated him because I kept calling him out instead of calling him in. And I should have been calling him in. And I have to repair that relationship. And I know, I know there's millions of American families that have had these broken relationships. And I don't know how many of us have repaired those relationships. Either, you know, maybe we've papered over them and pretended that that we didn't have those disagreements. But how do we repair those relationships on an individual level? And can we repair them? And how do we start talking to one another in ways that showcase the beauty of that, our story that I was talking about earlier? And you know, we definitely don't try to one-up one another. Um, and maybe we start talking about the fact that there is joy and beauty in you know this urban farm that I am part of, where I read about, or this you know California's grid is more resilient today than it was two years ago because it's a green energy grid and we were able to weather the storms and the heat waves. Um, and then so, you know if you're talking to somebody from Texas, they might you might not have to point out your grid failed, but maybe <laughs> maybe, it, maybe it'll occur to them that that happened. And maybe they'll wonder, maybe uh, Texas should get a more resilient grid. Uh, we need to figure out ways to talk to one another that won't have immediate results. We have to let go of that instant gratification, that need for instant gratification. And you know, we're not gonna walk away thinking, I changed his mind, you know? But maybe after many conversations, uh, you will change his mind, but he may not come out and tell you you've changed his mind because everybody wants to save face. Nobody wants to get back into a corner. We all want to think that we arrived at those conclusions on our own, and that's okay. As long as they get to that other side, it doesn't matter whether they admit that they were on the wrong side or not. So that's a big challenge, and that's where it doesn't matter. You don't have to be a filmmaker. You don't have to be a journalist, but you can engage in narrative shifting yourself. You can talk to your neighbors and friends and, and you know, get them a gift, gift subscription to Yes. <laughs> or like uh, uh, turn them on to the work that, that Yes is doing or that other independent journalists are doing or other organizations local in, in your community are doing. And, and that's how we build that world. It's a long-term project. It's not going to be quick. But we, you know, we have to, we have to keep going because what's the other option? We can't give up. <laughs> exactly. There, there is no alternative. And you spoke about the joy. And I was reminded um, you and I were privileged to be in Atlanta uh, covering uh, the first ever national convening on reparations posted by the Decolonizing Wealth Project. Um, it was a, a three-day conference, um, invite only. We spoke with folks across the movement uh, who are doing incredible work, folks who marched with Dr. King to young people. Um, and I remember for me, you know, being that space and being one of uh, maybe 10, 15 white people in the space, 
the joy was so present. At the opening reception, they rolled back the doors from the, the happy hour and they had a gospel choir on stage just singing joyfully. You can find Sonali's coverage of this on Yes. Um, and I think you know, that, was, that was a sense memory that I take with me. And I, I think about that as like, right? And the movement for reparations is generations old and overdue. And yet we are seeing folks, right, sharing joy in that struggle because you can't survive the struggle unless there is joy. And I wonder if that is a piece, right, as you start to find that common ground, even if it's small, right? Because that's, that's when we're more open to yeah. hearing different stories. Yeah, and you know, so much of what I write about and what I think about and my, my lens has been shaped by black America, so much of it. Every, every step of the way, um, when you look at all, the, all of the, the factors that indicate a failure of our system, black Americans have been impacted. Um, sometimes as, sometimes they, they rival indigenous Americans, but usually it's black Americans on every issue, or, you know, every statistical uh, measure of, of, a, of a failure of society. And that is a community that has found a way to survive and has led the way on building a better world. Because again, it, it reminds me of the work that I do with Afghan women. I'm not Afghan, I'm Indian. And, and Afghan feminists taught me that the, 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 place, the place where you have the worst oppression is often the place where you will find the most beautiful, constructive joy because they don't have a choice. They ha it's either that or die. It's survive and thrive and find a way to, to, to force your existence or, or, you know, you don't have a choice. And so, um, so I, 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 yeah, I think that we have to keep uplifting that joy because a multiracial democracy is a beautiful thing and it holds a lot of promise. And I'm wondering if I should read a little section from my book. I was just realizing mm, yes. that I didn't think about folding Yes, that. you could do that. I, my marked up copy is back in the green room. Can someone, do you know which I section you want? Did okay. You, did you want yeah, I, I do have a, um, I have one question here through the Q&A app and then if, uh, if anyone wants to come to the mic and ask Sonali directly, that's also an option. Um, it's a little bit of a pivot, uh, but this, this person writes that they've heard you say mostly in passing on KBCS that you consider yourself an atheist, if they're remembering correctly. Oh, did I say that on KBCS? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Um, but the question is uh, whether you've published anything long form or expansive on atheism as a demographic minority in this country. Wow, that's a really fascinating question. I, I have... Uh not thought about that in a long time. I used to be really in my youth when I was uh, militant youth. fanatic <laughs> about ideas. You know, I started, my background is in astronomy and physics. I, I, I am a scientist by training and, uh, and I, you know, that was very consistent with my deep and strong certain belief that there is no God. And, uh, and I like to, you know, before I discovered politics, I used to proselytize about the lack of existence of God. <laughs> but, uh, but you know what I realized? Uh, I used to wonder, there were scientists among, among my group that were very religious, they were very religious, and, and they didn't see any, any um, contradiction between science and religion. And, and I realize now that I can have so much more in common with a Christian 
than with an atheist and if that Christian shares progressive values. Uh, and I can have so little in common with an atheist like, I don't know, like Sam Harris or Bill Maher, right? Um, there are so many atheists who don't share values of humanism. And I think that dichotomy is no longer there for me, atheism versus theism. It's more um, values of, of, you know, centered on humanity versus, versus uh, fascism, you know? And, and so I think that's a, a more meaningful distinction now. So I don't have as much to say about atheism rather than, I don't really think about it that much anymore. Because it, it doesn't serve, it doesn't serve my goals that much anymore. <laughs> yeah, you've, you've evolved, Yeah. right? Um, well, yes, I'd love to have you share, share yeah, a section. Um, um, I, I'll share from the epilogue. The epilogue is a place in your book where you write something beautiful, but you don't know where you're going to fit it. And you've already written an introduction, and you've already written a conclusion, but you really want to fit this somewhere. And so you call it an epilogue, and you put it at the back of the book. <laughs> There is a certain lucidity that emerges when one occupies the status of a minority. I recall feeling it starkly for the first time when I moved from the United Arab Emirates, a country where most people looked like me, to Texas, one of the whitest parts of the United States. I feel it each time I leave the multiracial spaces of Los Angeles and, and arrive in Boston to visit my in-laws. I experience it when I leave the historically black neighborhood where I live and cross the freeway to the whiter, wealthier parts of my adopted hometown of Pasadena, California. The sensory shift that occurs when one moves from majority status into minority is instructive because our racial differences, superficial as they are on a biological level, are so visible to us, we often seek comfort in the conspicuous markers of skin color around which we aggregate. I've begun to understand how the white right's fear of becoming a minority, of losing privilege and power, especially in recent years, reinforces racist narratives and structural racism. I can relate to the anxiety and anger, for I often feel it in white-dominated spaces, but I cannot relate to the thirst to dominate. When people of color seek to correct the narratives that have been built up about us, we're not seeking power over another racial group. We're not seeking to bring George Orwell's animal farm to life by applying racial hierarchies only to reproduce them, by toppling racial hierarchies only to reproduce them in reverse order. We are seeking a reversal of injustice. We want space commensurate with our populations. We want racial equity. We want a collective liberation from oppression. Eventually, humanity may resemble my two sons, two cafe latte-colored mixed-race children. Already, it's getting harder to discern racial differences in this nation. The 2020 US Census revealed a massive 176% jump in the two or more races population. There is no stopping the transformation of the nation. We are rising up. Black, brown, Asian, Latinos, indigenous people are reaching a critical mass, expanding our demographic presence in the United States and representing what the racists fear when they dehumanize us. But this transformation need not generate fear or signify loss. Instead, it can be seen as a glorious evolution of not just who we are as individuals, but who we are and can be together. Thank you, Sonali. That is, you, that is beautiful. Uh, and as you speak about rising up, I am so excited to share it with folks here. 
that uh, this is the first time we're, we're announcing this. Um, Sonali's show, Rising Up with Sonali, uh, will be coming formally under the wing of Yes Presents. So beginning next week, you will see a refreshed, but still quintessentially Sonali, uh, Rising Up with Sonali. Um, you'll start seeing that on all the airwaves uh, that you currently can access the show. Um, but we are really excited to bring, bring your show um, under Yes's wing and uh, celebrate and and just continue to benefit from the incredible narrative work that you do uh and and yeah i just i'm i'm so excited i'm so grateful uh, for you sonali. i'm excited too so it'll be called yes presents rising up with sonali and uh you may have already noticed that i've pivoted from covering breaking news uh, through the lens of crisis journalism to sometimes covering breaking news but always through a solutions angle and uh and just then also covering the solution stories that Yes covers and interviewing our editors and our writers and amplifying the work that Yes does. So I'm very excited to to to, to have this marriage of, of two institutions that are so important to me. Absolutely. We're, we're grateful to have you. Grateful to all of you for being here. Thank you so much for coming out on a Wednesday. Um, thank you. Thank you. I want to shout out to my Yes colleagues, um, who I've many of whom, except for Sunavia, who I met for the first time in person in Atlanta. I got to meet Christine Hanna, our executive director, uh, Raquel Salazar, Iman Mohammed, where is Iman? There she is. And uh, of course, Chris Winters and Brianna Draxler, my co fellow editors, um, who I've learned so much from in the two years of being at Yes. And I'm so excited. Did I forget anybody from Yes? And, and, and a huge shout out to KBCS Community Radio, by the way, 91.3 FM. Please support them. Please support independent radio. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for radio stations like KPFK giving me a break, giving a break to a completely brand, you know, un, uh, uh, inexperienced radio person. And, and that's the kind of thing that that independent outlets like KBCS does. You know, it's, it's really, really important because it's, many cities in the US don't have a community radio station. So you guys are lucky to have them. So don't lose them. <laughs> and uh, please stick around and join us right here in the cafe uh, for a little reception. Uh, beverages, uh, refreshments are available for purchase. Have questions on the mic? I did not, okay. Does, okay. does anyone have questions on the mic? Would you like to step mm -hmm. up? No? Last call? No Before questions? you ask just one to one at the bar? Amazing. Could you, uh, could you come to the mic so we can right, capture right there, the... Right there. <laughs> and then we'll just, yeah. If you don't mind. Oh, oh. No, I'm just going to do it on the um, Maybe someone could help. You know, this concept of solution journalism is, I have to say, new to me. I mean, I know Yes Magazine from years ago and kind of just let it slide in... in the era of Trump, it's just like been so anxiety producing and overwhelming, but solution journalism is absolutely fascinating. Um, and so one question is, is this like kind of taught in journalism schools? Yes, I can, I can speak to that. Um, increasingly, yes, there are a handful of, of journalism schools that are teaching solutions journalism. I've been privileged enough to zoom into a few classes. Um, the Craig Newmark School of Journalism uh, at CUNY um, in New York City. Um, there's a handful, uh, Columbia College, Chicago. Um, you know, increasingly, I think, you know, seasoned journalists who are now professors who have also, frankly, experienced the toll on them as journalists of this kind of crisis journalism, right? We are not objective. We are, 
we're not impartial to the suffering that we report on. It takes a toll on us as well. And I think, you know, for me, that was part of what led me to yes. This yes was my first foray into solutions journalism. And it has been a healing process for me. It is, it is more sustainable. Uh, I, I watch every new person we bring to the team go through that process. Sonali talked about of like, it, it's like a detoxing. I no almost. longer have PTSD. I have a second, journalist get <laughs> secondary PTSD, I'm not joking, from covering the news because we can't look away. Mm-hmm. And we're supposed to be like constantly covering the, the, the crisis. Mm-hmm. And it's terribly demoralizing and dehumanizing. I used to do a lot of art. It was like art therapy. I don't do that much anymore. Mm. Mm. But, but yes, so solutions journalism is, is uh, emerging. I, you know, to pat ourselves on yes was a was an early adopter of of it and was practicing this before it had the name solutions journalism. Um, but there are there are other organizations we work very closely with the Solutions Journalism Network, uh, which highlights solutions journalism that occurs in across newsrooms uh, around the country. They have a, a solutions journalism tracker where you can find other solutions journalism stories. We're starting to see it even in in the New York Times. You'll see a handful of stories here or there where they they just dive a little deeper. It does take more resources. It takes uh, you know, newsroom leadership that is open to, to allocating those resources differently. Uh, but the result, even from a capitalistic revenue-based audience standpoint, is beneficial, right? The audience is more engaged. The audience is more hopeful. They want to keep reading those kinds of stories versus you know, the things where you, you look at this newspaper and you're dejected. You have to put it down. Um, so, so yes, it, it is it is a real thing. It is emerging. Uh, it is not something that I was taught uh, in when I was in in journalism school 15 years ago. But it is a thing that students, some students, are learning now, which I'm thrilled to see. Yeah, I mean, you know, st- status quo journalism is crisis journalism, and journalism covering people who are changing things—that's solutions journalism. And I think most journalists, regardless of of anything, we've been indoctrinated on around objectivity, I think most of us got into the field because we wanted to make a difference, right? We wanted to be a part of sunshine being the best disinfectant. We wanted to shine a light on injustice and do it in a very fact-based way, in a way that validated the truth. But most folks that I know in this field, you know, we're, we're do-gooders. We want, we want to highlight justice and we want, we want to see a world where people are, are healthier and safer and, and more connected. Uh, and solutions journalism, I think, is, is a path to allowing us to do that using the tools that we already have in our profession and that we, we know and, and love utilizing for those of us who, for whom journalism is a calling. It's a great question, thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Okay. We can all oh. chit-chat over, oh, Christine. Christine. This is our executive director, Christine Hanna. Hi, everybody. Thank you all for coming. I'm, I work with Sonali and Sunavi, and um, I have a question. Um, I recently have been paying a lot more attention to, uh, so I have a 15-year-old, and hang out with 15-year-olds and folks of that generation, and I've been paying more attention to, like, where are they getting their information and ideas? Like, what's happening there? And I was doing a little research recently, and um, if... If you are under 35 and spend time on social media, you spend about an average, this is an average of 90 minutes a day on TikTok and about 30 minutes a day on Instagram. So those two platforms alone, it's like 30, excuse me, two hours a day. Um, average. And the people I've talked to who are of that age are like, oh yeah, that's easy. Like that's, that's like a minimum. Um, 
so my question is about narrative change. What does that mean for people who are looking to shift, if you've thought about it, if you haven't, that's okay. <laughs> she talks about TikTok in the book. Yeah, good, okay, good. I haven't read the book yet, um, but I will. Um, yeah, I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Like, what, it, what, what does that mean for a narrative shift and for folks who are working on narrative shift, especially in the solutions space that we operate in? I'm curious about that. You're right. Oh, sorry. You're right that people spend so much time on TikTok. I was taking the train from the airport yesterday, and, like, there was this young woman who came and sat next to me, and she's on her phone, and I just see her, like, it's, like, it's fascinating, like, rapid fire, switching from one video to the other, and, and then she'll stop, and I have no idea why she would stop and watch this one, and then she would go, go, and it's, like, totally, like, rapid fire information, you know, sucking it up through the screen, and my 16-year-old my kid, I, I don't... I, I haven't allowed him to be on TikTok yet. <laughs> he gets to be on Instagram, though, and it's a private account, and I'm, like, really protective. But even on Instagram, he's constantly, like, you know, the majority of things he watches are, like, cat videos. But every now and then, like, there'll be, like, some funny, like, sad, because he's a, I don't know, it's like a 16-year-old boy thing, but he'll find, like, some, he, likes loves the onion and, like, satire, really. He, he to him, the way into politics is, like, satire and making fun of, of, of conservatives. But TikTok is also a very powerful way for people of color to showcase our humanity. TikTok dances are a thing. Young black people are inventing new dances and change, you know, this is cultural work that they're doing. And it might on the surface seem like not a very political thing. Okay, so they're inventing dances, so what? But those aspects of art and creativity, those are what make us human, that multidimensionality where you cannot put somebody in a box because they don't just dance, they're not just, you know, they don't just identify as a black person, they, they do 500 little things, some of which you will see on TikTok and others of which you'll never see. Those are the complexities that celebrate the humanity of various communities that have been left out of, of mainstream media. So when, I think it was Jimmy Fallon invited like TikTok, dance influencers to his show and oops accidentally only invited two white people he got called out on tiktok by the inventors of the tiktok dancer dances saying you know you erased us and he was called out canceled halfway uh people you know jumped on him and the very next week he had on two or three of the black inventors of these young black folks who, were, who had invented these TikTok dances, they forced him to see them for who they are. And uh, that's the kind of thing that TikTok and these other social media, you know, next month or next year, it'll be a different uh, platform and that's fine. But that's the kind of thing that it allows, these social media platforms allow young people to do, express themselves freely, unfiltered, and read each other's expressions and, and be exposed to each other's expressions and work. And it should be seen for us journalists as a really important landscape in which we can have a, a, a you know, place a stamp and, and catch their eyeballs and showcase the work that we do. How do we distill a six minute read, 1200 word article into the 10 seconds that a TikTok video really ought to take, maybe 20? I don't know. That is a challenge. And I got to figure out how to make these rapid fire videos where you can just like spit out a few words, throw in some music, flash a few images, 
you know, I don't know, maybe maybe the next generation of journalists can do, can do that. But we got to do, we got it. It's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And I think, you know, places like TikTok and, and Twitter to some extent, but especially TikTok, remove the barriers to who can become a cultural influencer, right? It, it removes the, some of the control of the gatekeepers, traditionally, who would say, oh, no, you know, you, you, you know, black girl from South Central, you're not, you couldn't have created that. Yes, I did. And look, here are the receipts, by the way, right? Like, it, it reduces barriers in a way that even, you know, even when I was in school did not exist. Um, and I think that that's, that's something really powerful, and, and it, is, it is a form of collective action and connection, right, among folks, because it's not just one person saying, hey, I created this. Other folks are like, yeah, yeah, she did, and right, it just builds, and I think it builds connection, particularly in a moment in the world, in this country, where we are increasingly isolated, right? We are, we are, we are physically distanced, we are on our phones all the time, and it can build connection in a way that I think ultimately also drives unity. Yeah, I mean, people can, people, I, I point out, I can't remember where it was in my book, but there was, there was a TikTok, uh, she's a teacher on TikTok, who, who did it, who did this TikTok video about how uh, police, policing is racist, and she just wrote a cute little catchy song that she just made up on the spot, and then she's like sang it on TikTok, and it went viral. And she, you know, she just had this very simple but articulate message about like connecting a bunch of different dots, and she just put it out there. And got a lot of attention, and it was it was cool. So yeah, we need we need we need to reach young people and young and, and learn from young people, and not just reach them, but learn from them because they're posting about the things that they're doing on TikTok, and some of them are very powerful and political. All right, yes, let's let's call it friends. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you. Join us here for a reception. Thank you again. Thank you, Sonali. Thank Congratulations. You, We're so glad you're here. Thank you.